Turn with me this morning in your Bibles again to the book of Nehemiah. As we resume our our study here, we've been away from it for a few weeks here in Nehemiah chapter 6. I've got Nehemiah so much entrenched in my mind that last week I looked down at my sermon notes from Proverbs 31 and it said Nehemiah 31. I've got it geared up here. But we are actually back into the book of Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now there's times in our Christian life, our Christian experience, that we just have to sit back and we marvel that God does so much with apparently so little. That God can do so much, such great things with so little, it seems, to work with. You know, we can stop and we can think about our own Christian experience and we can consider perhaps the opposition we face, the opposition we face even on a daily basis as we seek to honor the Lord and glorify the Lord. We experience the spiritual opposition. And we think about our own weaknesses. We think about our own failures, our own sins. And yet, somehow in the midst that we can look back on occasions and we can find that God really has done something great in spite of all that. We just have to sit back and marvel that He can do so much with so little. You know, the best plants, they tell us, grow within a controlled environment. They grow within the nurseries. We had, a few years ago, an Easter lily given to us one Easter Sunday. You know, one of those Easter lilies that are in a potted plant, and it's up about this tall. And So we took that Easter lily home, and we planted it. And next year, it grew again. You know how tall it got in my yard? About this tall. <laughs> Because it wasn't given the nurture, the care that it received in the in the nursery or wherever it had been taken care of, and you know we we expect that under the ideal circumstances, it's amazing what God does many times in the ideal circumstances. Just simply are not there, is it not? I mean, I, I'm not the ideal person for God to accomplish great things, but every now and then He does something. So, this morning, I want us to think about this morning from Nehemiah as we read our text here at Nehemiah 6, begin with verse 15, and how God's work goes on. God's work goes on here in spite of what seemingly would bring it to a downfall, to an end, or at least to a great slowdown. Let's look at verse 15 of chapter 6. The wall was completed. Well, those are some nice words, aren't they? The wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. And it came about when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Y'all got all that connection there? Make sure you get all that pictured in your mind. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters 
to frighten me. Now, many times we have to have a backup plan for things. And many times we have to resort to it. There's a pastor friend of mine in in St. Louis, Fenton First Baptist Church there, John Griever, a very dear brother who I got to know while I was living in St. Louis. And while I was there, they had gone through a process of selling their church property. And they had property secured where they were going to rebuild. They had already sold their property to Deerberg's grocery store. And so they were removed, and so they had their property to rebuild, and they knew they were going to have to, in the the interim of a few months, rent, or at least meet somewhere. And so they were actually meeting on Sunday mornings in a school auditorium, and then their church offices were in a large building, and it was basically a warehouse that they used the front offices for for the church study, for the pastor's study, and offices, those types of things. Well, they had had this plan laid out, they had sold their property. The property was gone. And then they started running into complications with the new property. There were some resistance, first of all, from the neighborhood. It was They were building into something of, a, of an exclusive neighborhood. And there were some people who just didn't simply want... They didn't want a church there. And if not the church, think of all the cars. This is a church that runs about 800 on Sunday morning. Just all the traffic's going to be there. So they're thinking, we don't want this. So there's some resistance they experienced... I think there was a lawsuit not toward them, but toward the city for having allowed this type of thing. So that was part of the problems they ran into. They ran into some zoning restrictions from the city. Then there were some problems with the nature of the soil. It wasn't this kind of soil they thought it was. So when they go in for the excavation, it has to be dealt with in a particular way. I mean, things can really get very particular because they were on something of of a hillside as well. So all these issues they kept having to deal with, kept having to go through, and as it came down, I would talk to John. We would meet on a pretty regular basis, and he would just share with me and say, Man, this is not going the way we planned. <laughs> and they ended up having to continue to meet on school property for over two years. And their church offices were continuing to meet in this warehouse building. And so many times, actually, John would come over to the campus at Covenant Seminary and go to the library and study just to have a good place for him to study because the warehouse was not the most conducive place for him. Not according to their plan. You know, they rented much longer than they had had to. And, you know, I think sometimes in our minds, maybe I'm the only one guilty of this, but I think sometimes in our minds we visualize God having to resort to another plan. You know, we've got wonderful doctrines down pat. When it comes to justification by faith, we've got that down pat. Where we struggle is with the idea of sanctification by faith. That's where it gets confused. And sometimes we struggle. We, we're dealing with God on, our, on the basis of our performance and things rather than understanding the relationship that we have with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another area, a doctrine that we've grasped pretty easily is the area of the sovereignty of God. And it's a great comfort, is it not, when we consider the sovereignty of God, particularly in light when we're thinking about Satan, we're thinking about the enemies of God, we can think, ah, God is sovereign. God is in charge. God's will is done. But I think we struggle 
with the idea of the sovereignty of God when it comes to God dealing with us and working through us. We're convinced that Satan cannot stop the work of God, the progress of God, aren't we? Aren't we? <laughs> Let's hope so. But we're not so convinced on many occasions that we can't stop the work of God. The sovereignty of God. And what I want us to consider this morning is to remember that we labor for God in God's kingdom. We labor by His grace. And so therefore, we can remain confident of His work being accomplished. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I want to hit it on the head here real quick. We get so caught up many times in our own failures, our own shortcomings, the times that we have not done what we believe that God has to do, and somehow or another we think the plan of God is all is all messed up now. The sovereignty of God when He works through people like us. Imperfect people. You know, we're not the ideal candidates. We're sinners. Redeemed by grace. But that's whom God has chosen to work with. Here we're going to look at what Nehemiah encounters here in verses 15 and following. As Nehemiah begins this section just telling us the wall is completed. The work's done. God's work has continued. It has gone on. It has not been stopped. And first of all, he reminds us that it's been against this relentless enemy. Where do we see the very last verse in 19? Here it is. Tobiah. This guy just keeps popping up, doesn't he? <laughs> He's there. We've seen him all the way from, from the beginnings when Nehemiah is going into Jerusalem. Here comes Samballot and here comes Tobiah. You know, the, the two peas in a pod. And here they begin their attacks. And he was there from the very beginning. We saw him in chapter 2, verses, verse 19, as they began to, to, to attack just by mocking. What are you doing here? Are you going against the edict of the king? Because there had been, incidentally, an edict passed when Ezra was there earlier. And it brought in a group. They'd been in edict past that there's to be no more rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so they said, well, you're going against the king here. So they, they come in there mocking him. And then Tobiah was the one you may remember back in back in chapter 4. It says, when they sees the wall going up, oh, if a fox comes and he jumps on it, you know, it's just going to crumble. They don't know how to do this. That's Tobiah. Then we saw him in chapter 4, verse 8. He is the one who is a co-conspirator with the enemies. The enemies of God's work there all on the four sides. You know, Tobiah represents there in chapter 4, verse 7, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, all the enemies, north, south, east, and west. There is Tobiah conspiring with them. And then we saw him in chapter 6, verse 12, that Tobiah had again conspired with Sanballat, and they had hired this man to Shemaiah to come and let's trick Nehemiah to come in and hiding within the temple. And of course, Nehemiah recognizing that they had hired this man to do so. So here we have him in 6.19. You know, he's just the, the intimidator. He keeps writing his letters, keeps communicating, keeps an open line of communication with Nehemiah. But his purpose, as Nehemiah tells us there in verse 19, is that Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Now, what kind of thing would he be saying? No, we don't know exactly. Maybe something like, hey, 
I've got people on the inside. I know everything you do. And there are some people, incidentally, that are right there close to you that they're with me. You know, bringing fear, trying to bring fear into Nehemiah's heart. Not everyone is so appreciative of your intrusion into Jerusalem, kind of made your little throne here. Not everyone here appreciates that, Nehemiah. So he comes in just stirring up. You know, Nehemiah's lesson here is this. The lesson for us is that life devotion to the ways of God is a battle. It is a battle. It is a lifelong battle. Why? It's not just about us. It's about Satan. It's about Satan who hates the work of God being accomplished. And this Satan who has blinded the minds and the eyes of those who are more than willing to bid his coming, to bid his do his bidding, do his work. He hates the ways of God. He hates the work of God. He hates to see God's work advancing. And so he's at work. And so when God is accomplishing great things, and much of the time when he does it, how does he do it? He does it through people. You know, there are the occasional things that we see that was truly of God, and it's kind of a phenomena. But much of what God does, He does through people. He does through His church. Satan hates that. He hates you because he hates God. It's a lifelong battle. He's a relentless enemy. And it's there day after day after day. The emphasis here, though, is not that there is opposition. That's, that's a given. That's obvious. The emphasis here in our text here from Nehemiah is that the purposes of God are accomplished in spite of this relentless opposition. In spite of it. God's work goes on. His work is not slowed. His work is not stopped. He presses on. And Nehemiah's encouragement is this, that God sovereignly accomplishes His will and His purposes just as efficiently as though there were no opposition. You ever thought about that? God gets His work done according to His plan just as efficiently as though there is no opposition. That God is accomplishing His work, His purposes, His will, and even use using evil men to accomplish that. Because, and we've talked about it here before, you know, there are other things going on here, and Nehemiah is, is growing in faith through this process. God's accomplishing more than just building a wall, He's working, accomplishing His purposes. Enemies, yes, but the work goes on. You know, that should be of great encouragement to all of us, to all of God's people, because we get to a point in our lives where we tend to fatigue. We have a sense of, of failure and, and our falling that when when God's opposition arises and especially when we're a part of it and we yield to the temptation, we're like, man, I've I've become the enemy here. We yield to the temptation here. Listen, God has not hung the responsibility of his work on our shoulders. He hasn't done that. He's not poured out the work and say, Here, you do this, and I'll step back and I'll watch. And see what you can accomplish. That's not the way that God works. That's not the the way of grace. That He calls us to come alongside Him. He calls us to come and to look to Him. To trust in Him. To pray to Him. And to acknowledge, Lord, if this is to be, it's not up to me. It's up to you. 
And He will accomplish His work through human agency, through people. But it will be done. See, spirituality is not, and I've told you this before, and many times as I looked at this message, I thought, you know, I'm kind of rehashing a lot of old stuff here. <laughs> That's okay, because as I told you before, it's good to be reminded of these things, is it not? The spirituality is not me living and doing for Him. True spirituality is learning what it is to labor by His strength. Learning what it is to labor by His grace. Learning to to know what it is to trust in Him. To know my need of Him in every circumstance of life. That's spirituality. I'm not going to put on an impressive show for God. And He doesn't call for me to. He calls for us to walk along beside Him. To walk with Him. To look to Him. To trust Him. It's His work. It must be accomplished by Him. See, God has managed to accomplish His purposes against the enemy for several thousand years here now. You know that? He's done pretty well, hasn't He? I mean, read the Scripture. There's always been an enemy. But what's the story of Scripture? God succeeds. God wins. God's purposes, God's will is accomplished. It's done. So we don't need to worry that this is the generation of failure. God is still doing quite well against His enemies. It's another marvel of His greatness. That God still accomplishes what He can accomplish in less than ideal circumstances, less than perfect people. Still, His work is done. He does it against a relentless enemy. He also does it amid a resistant element here. Nehemiah gives a little bit of insight here in our verses, beginning in verse 17, is some, something of the difficulty he is facing, which he's not told us about before. And actually, I think it's we need to understand these verses. Verse 15, where he says, The wall was completed on the 25th day in 52 days. And then the enemies heard about this. In verse 17, he says, In those days, many letters... He's kind of gives a view. These are some things that have been going on here. In this time frame. It's not as though once the wall was done. This is chronological here. This is the next thing that happened. What he's telling us here. This has been the business of Tobiah. This has been the activity of others within the ranks here. As the process of this wall being built has gone on here. He's got some quite frankly. They're not completely on board with him. Which more significantly is that they're not on board with God because they're not on board with what God is doing there. It's God's work that Nehemiah is is seeing accomplished here. So verses 17 through 19, it says, In those days that there were many letters who went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. There's these open lines of communication between Tobiah and some of the nobles there in, in Judah. Because many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. His son, Johanan, had married the Johanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. And don't get the tape and see if I pronounce these the same way this time as I did the first time. But what's he saying here? He's got these nobles in Judah who have mixed loyalties. 
You know, they've got they've got connections. They've got ties with Tobiah. And so they're communicating with him. And not only are they communicating with him, they in verse 19, they're speaking to Nehemiah about the good deeds of Tobiah. But they're also reporting my words to him. Everything he says, Tobiah gets it. What's the problem here? Again, it's divided loyalties. There are those who, they may appreciate the improvements. I mean, there have been some significant improvements made here in Judah and Jerusalem in particular here. They appreciate those improvements. No doubt they'll benefit from them. But on the other hand, some of these nobles have paid somewhat dearly because of some of the things that Nehemiah has done here. Look back in chapter seven, seven chapter five I'm sorry, chapter five verse seven. You remember this? When you had the nobles of the city, when they were in effect taking everything they could from the poor. And so he, I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers and I said to them, you're exacting usury or interest each from his brother. In other words, you're, you're taking advantage of a situation where your brothers are in absolute poverty. You're taking everything that they possibly own. You're charging interest. There's no way under the sun they will ever be able to recover what you've, what you've loaned them. Can't do it. And so they'll never regain their properties. Some of them having to sell their children into slavery. And so we see the further results there in verse, chapter 5, verse 11 and following. Give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, the oil that you're exacting from them. They said, we will give it back. <laughs> they will give it back. And we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. It sounds great, doesn't it? It is great. But, verse 12. Then they said, we will give it back. We'll require nothing from them. We'll do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and I took an oath from them. <laughs> Why do you think Nehemiah did that? Oh yeah, you say you're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to get something solid behind this. So he brought the priest in. And he took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then you know, you remember the next thing Nehemiah did? He did there in verse 13. I also, I shook out the front of my garment... May this happen to you. Just like the prophet. The prophetic word here. The, the prophetic picture. The prophets were noted for. For giving that picture. We, I want you to see this. May God shake you out. Like this. If you veer from this promise. So they had made a promise. But Nehemiah secures this thing. And so we have within here a mix of those who. Yeah they're benefiting. There's a lot of good things. But on their hand. They've had to pay a little bit here. They've lost. You know, the things that they just they were loaning, they, they gave back. All those things to the to the poor class there. The consequence of this, of these who were there with divided lawyers, was this. He had within this mixture those who were, who were straddling the fence. They benefit from Nehemiah's reforms overall, yet they demonstrate their loyalties to Tobiah. You know, they're not completely in, but they're not completely out. And so Nehemiah is left with a people of influence, the nobles, 
He's left with the people of influence that simply cannot be trusted. They are regularly communicating with Tobiah. They're speaking well of Tobiah to Nehemiah. They're sending regular updates on Nehemiah to Tobiah. You know, so Nehemiah's got to wonder, well, these guys, are they for me or against me? Are they in or are they out? You know, it's not such a unique problem. It's not such a unique problem. You know, it's been common among the people of God of every age. There have been churches that have been filled with those who will gladly benefit from the church, from being a part. They just like it. You know, if a church is worth anything, it's got some, most of them have some pretty nice people and they're pretty good people to be around, to have your kids around and all that type of thing. It's a good place to be. But on the other hand, they demonstrate very little in the way of true spirituality. And they offer and they bring what Paul speaks of to Timothy, those who hold a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, they have a, an appearance of godliness. They can speak in a certain way of godliness and godly things. But their life shows that there's no reality to what they profess. Turn with me very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Of course, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, the church of great need. Notice Paul's word here to the church here at Corinth, chapter 10. I did not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, listen carefully, our fathers were all, all under the cloud. Who's he speaking of here? Well, he's speaking of in the Old Testament, speaking of the Jews, the Israelites. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. You get the picture here? Come out of Egypt, Red Sea. They all passed through. They were all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low. They were destroyed in the wilderness. What's he saying here? There were multitudes that came out of Egypt with Moses in this group. But they're they're simply on the fringe. Not people who love God. Not people who love God's law. They're not people who are devoted to God's way. They're on the fringe. But what happens? They get to the Red Sea and, you know, here comes a part of the wall crating on these people. No, they all go through. What about when the food, the manna, comes from heaven? Do just the really righteous people get it? No, they're all fed. You know, it's kind of the common grace thing. It rains on the just and the unjust. They're all receiving this benefit. all receiving good things from the hand of God, benefiting greatly. But verse 5, Paul says, with most of them, God was not well pleased. 
That's a nice way of saying he was upset. Why? Well, verse 6 says, these things happen, for example, because that we shouldn't crave evil things like they did. That was one of the problems. They just craved evil things. They weren't delighting in the things of God. They wanted the things that were evil. They wanted, hey, let's go back to Egypt. Remember how good it was? Let's go back. They craved for evil things. They craved for sin. Verse 7, some of them were idolaters. Remember that, don't we? They set up false god. Aaron. Aaron. Set up a golden calf. Some of them, just verse 8, they acted immorally. Don't let us, nor let us act immorally like some of those did. Verse 9, don't let us try the Lord like some of those did. What a mess. So you have got those, they're, they're craving after evil things. They're idolaters. They're immoral. They're putting God to the test. Man, well, we don't have that, do we? Ah, we're fine here. Then it goes on to verse 10. No grumble. No grumble, as some of them did. Complain. You know, I can, I can kind of avoid the sins of 6, 7, 8, and 9 pretty well, but I get to verse 10, I think, uh-oh, this is getting personal here, isn't it? <laughs> That's what he says. It, they were grumblers, complainers against God. The things of God, the ways of God. And after receiving so much good from His hand, and a complaining, grumbling against their status. Back to Nehemiah, if you would. You know, what was the test in Nehemiah's day? Their loyalties and their speech. It was a test. I mean, it reveals it. Those who are unable or at least unwilling to move from those natural loyalties and those ties and to see the priority of what should be spiritual ties. Now, there are, there are very natural ties that we have in the world. Ties of family brothers and sisters and parents and all that thing. But let me tell you something. We need to be careful that we do not elevate those things above the spiritual ties that we have within the context of the church. You remember the time that Jesus was out speaking and some of the, some of the men said, hey, you know that who's out here? Your mom and your sister. You know what Jesus said? These are my sisters and my brothers, those who do the will of God. Sometimes we have to make some hard choices, some painful choices. But to recognize that our priority is to be upon the people, the family of God. doesn't mean that I love my family less. But it does mean my priorities are to be toward those. I had a situation in a church where people hadn't been in the church for years. I mean, just hadn't been there. And so, the attempt was made to purge the membership. And so they went through, the pastor and the deacons, went through the list of, let's just compile this. These people have not been here for years. Some of them still live right in the community that haven't been here for years. So, what are they going to do? All right, they, first they, they sent out a letter, a general letter. 
Very simple. Card, check, one box, the other. Do you want to continue to be a member or not? All you got to do is send it back. Most of those they didn't get back. And then it got down to, all right, let's look at who we got here. You know the, the biggest problem they ran into? These are my kids. That are grown and married with families. Never darken the door of a church. Well, these are my kids. We can't do that. See, it doesn't matter about the health of the church and that way of thinking. Well, these are my kids. I can't do that. See, there are bigger issues. You know, Mark Deaver, a pastor up in Washington, D.C., of uh, Capital Baptist Church, has a book out, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And he talks about that in that book. Uh, that One of the marks of a healthy church is that you need, he talks in the context actually of spiritual of church discipline, he says, but we need to have small front doors and wide open back doors. You got to be careful, you know, of, of when people come in that we do all we can to discern spiritually where they are on their walk with the Lord, that they are truly Christian believers. But to open the back door wide and if they want to go, let them go. That's not very popular, is it? It's not to say that we just are turning people out, but it is to say this that there are people who have no heart for the things of God, no things for the Spirit of God. Let them go and let them be free, and they do as they please. Again, I hope you understand the context that we, we love people and we desire to see them come and we do all that we can, but we don't need to maintain, thank we don't have that issue here, to maintain church roles of people that we don't have a clue where they are and, they, and some of them walk in distance of the church. The loyalties. The loyalty, another test for them here at Nehemiah's day was their speech. What are they doing? What are they doing? They're, they're defenders defenders of evil men at the same time criticizing the godly. I've seen pastors. I have seen pastors, godly men, absolutely taken to task by people defending ungodly people. How sad. Defending ungodliness. You know, we need to, to be wise here and to recognize that, you know, not everybody's going to be on board what you think's on board. They appear to be on board. There's a resistant element here in Nehemiah's day. It's not unique to his day, but you know what? In spite of all this, God's work goes on, doesn't it? His hand has not stayed. He's not stopped. God's work goes on. And we can rejoice in His goodness and His sovereignty. And finally, we see... God's work goes on above reasonable expectation. What do we see? Verse 15. The wall was completed the 25th day of the month of Elul, somewhere between August, September, October. 52 days in less than two months. Now, this is a task that had been deemed impossible. That's why it hadn't been tackled. I mean, this is too big of a job. Let's not, let's not fool this. We'll never get it done. So nobody bothered with it. And it's a job that's been completed in less than two months. Now, who expected that? I don't think anybody did. I don't think Nehemiah did. But in two months, less than two months, this was a job that was completed. Tell the people before this work begins, hey guys, we're going to do this job, we'll get it done in 50 days, 60 days. We'll get it done in three months. Who's going to say, oh yeah, I can see that. Uh-uh. It was above all reasonable expectation. There was no one... How, what, had, what had happened here? 
Nehemiah has told us God had met in these unexpected ways. He, there's times where, where Nehemiah says that God gave us a heart to work. There are times when Nehemiah says that He gave strength to our hands for the task. God is the one meeting. God is the one accomplishing these things. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And it gets done. And when it's all, all done, all completed, His own people stand back and amaze because this is far beyond anything they would have expected. And then even His enemies have to admit the obvious, as He tells us here down in verse 16. They lost their confidence because they recognized that this work was accomplished with the help of our God. Even the enemy has to fess up here. God's done something. Their God, the true and the living God, has done something. God has a way of getting the glory He deserves. And when it's all said and done here, that's what happens. God gets the glory from those who labor with Him, those who labor from Him, those who labor against Him. God gets the glory. You know, many times our struggle is this. We want to share in the glory. We do. I mean, we don't mind God getting most of the glory. Almost all the glory. But you know, I had a part in this. I like a little bit of glory here. And so we like to be able to retell the story where, you know, we look good and where we look like, well, we're the type of person that God can use. And if you are like me, God could use you too. We like to be the kind of people that did it all right. So you can encourage people, you get it all right. And everybody's looking and saying, I'll never get it all right. And in reality, we know we don't. Now, there's not a, an excusing of sin or laziness or carelessness. But here's the way God's done it through history. God's accomplished His work, His will, His purposes. And God has received glory unto His own name, always using imperfect people. That's the way He's done it. And he's done it in what we would look at and say, this is the less than the ideal circumstances. And he's done it. There's great encouragement in that. The circumstances don't have to be ideal. I don't have to be perfect. God will... You know, Paul put it this way. Paul was afflicted. After his great vision, he said, I was given a thorn in the flesh. You know what what his story came to on that? He said, I boast about my weaknesses. That the power of Christ may dwell in me. What's he saying there? I'm going to be able to, you know, don't we naturally want, we want to boast in our strengths, don't we? Yeah, I was, I did well here. I'm boasting. I says, listen, I want all the glory to God. I boast in my weakness. I say, listen, I'm an absolute, unreliable person for this task. But look what God has done in spite of me. Where do you go to the New Testament and find Paul ever saying anything like, you know, if you would do like this, like I do, you'd be doing real well. You see a man whose life is marked by humility, a man who recognizes it's not me, it's the grace of God at work within me. And he dares to say, follow me after I follow, as I follow Christ. But it's not to look to me, it's to look to Christ. Boast in my weakness, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God's work goes on. 
He does His work through an enemy, against a relentless enemy. God's been opposed from the time of Satan's fall. He's been opposed. He does it in the midst of a resistant element. You know, there's not everybody that's on board here. God's work still gets on. You know, and it's not even in complete response to faith. We have great faith. You know, who who had the faith to believe that the Great Wall was going up in 52 days? No. It exceeds that. It's above all reasonable expectation. For God's work is done. Can God do that through us? Can God use me? Yeah. He's got a way of doing that. Confess your sin, but don't be concerned about who gets the glory. Let God get the glory. You get none, and everything's fine. If He gets credit, all goes well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can see in Your Word that that it is a success story. That it continues to succeed. The way of God progresses, Your work gets done. and We contribute much, much less than we ever thought. But You've chosen to use us. You've chosen to use imperfect vessels. You've chosen to, to work in less than ideal circumstances. And what a glory that is to You. We praise You, O Father, O Lord, Sovereign Lord. Pray You'd use these words in our hearts today to encourage us not to be so earthbound in our thinking and our vision, not to be so consumed with our own failure and shortcomings, but oh, to see the glory of God, to see the hand of God, to truly embrace the, the truth of the sovereignty of God in our affairs, in our lives, and those things that You would use us for. Well, we can think of all the reasons that You wouldn't use us, but You choose to. And we thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.